friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ear. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Let them eat cake. You had an option, sir. You could have said, I am not going to do it. This is wrong for Canada. Because I have a dream. We happy few. We band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. That if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm your host, Neil White, joined as always by my brother, David. And David, it's a new year, 2019. Welcome to the first podcast of 2019. Exciting. It is exciting. Of course, we uh, didn't want to move into 2019 too quickly. We took a look back at 2018 with the Obies, which were some awards that we, you know, we made them up. They're just, they're not a real award show, but we made it up, did it on social media, posted some of our favorite people, places, events from the 2018 podcast. So we'll have to do that again in 2019 with our favorite things from all the new podcasts that we're going to do. If you want to follow along, see what's up with the Obies, check out our social media at when art thou is our handle on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at when art thou. And of course, our website is obrother.ca. So please give us a like, subscribe, and follow along because we do fun things like the Obies every so often. But now we are into 2019. No more looking back at 2018. We are looking forward to a new year and a new podcast. David, you got something for us? Well, I might. So of course, on this podcast, I always ask the question, Oh brother, when art thou? Neil, it's the 2nd of October, 1920. And King Alexander of Greece is walking his dog, Fritz, on the ground of his estate. Suddenly, a monkey appears, bursting out of the bushes, and it attacks, or possibly Fritz attacks, the monkey. Its accounts are not clear on that point, but one way or another, these two animals get into a fight, and King Alexander, a decent responsible dog owner attempts to separate them and the monkey startled bites him a bite that will have traumatic implications on the history of the world to come well you know they say fighting like monkeys and dogs okay that might not be the exact expression but it's something like that (laughs) i was gonna say do they say that (laughs) well I'm saying it now. All right. Because obviously this monkey was getting into it with Fritz the dog, which is a great name for a dog. And so this is the dog of the king of Greece. And he had to walk his own dog, David? I believe he chose to walk his own dog. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. I guess some people like to walk their own dogs. If you live in Greece, it's probably a pretty nice place to walk your dog. If you live in Canada and it's minus 40... You might want to get a dog walker if you're a king. It's a possibility. Fritz has an interesting history of his own, by the way. He was actually given to King Alexander by a British officer who'd fought on the Greek front of World War I, who'd captured him from a German trench. So there's just a little interesting history there, too. 
So Fritz was a German dog. Well, that's where the name comes from. Well, that does make sense. So the king gets bitten by this monkey. I'm guessing that's like basically a treasonous offense to bite a king. Well, it's certainly not approved. And actually, it will come out later on that this is a pet monkey belonging to one of the gardeners who will have to respond to some questions about his pet ownership and responsibility or lack thereof. But for Greece, more importantly, King Alexander, in the immediate aftermath of this monkey bite, gets sick, badly sick. This is why you got to keep up to date on your monkey shots, folks. That's a little PSA. So what happens to Greece with the king sick, David? Well, that takes a little bit of history to explain. Oh, good, because this is a history podcast. You see, the country's thrown immediately into a dramatic constitutional crisis. And you may be thinking, surely there are plans for what to do if the king gets sick. Typically, one of the things hereditary monarchy is good for is having a clear line of succession. Although I would say if the founders had foreseen monkey biting the king and put in a contingency plan for that, that was that would have been some amazing foresight. If they predicted the specifics, yes, I would be impressed. Um, but nonetheless, the immediate problem is that King Alexander has family. He has family. And family means drama. As anyone who has watched Desperate Housewives knows, family means drama. So, David, not saying I've watched Desperate Housewives, just it's the principle of the thing. <laughs> but look, moving, moving on, moving on. What sort of drama arises from King Alexander's big, fat Greek family? Well, the first thing that this comes back to is the First World War. It's 1920. They're only two years after the end of the First World War, which, of course, globally was a traumatic conflict that changed basically everything everywhere it occurred. But for Greece, the First World War was also a civil war. Okay, so remind us of the history of Greece during the First World War. Were they actually fighting in the global conflict and having a civil war at the same time? Yeah, yeah, basically they were. You see, at the start of the war, Greece was a neutral country, not directly involved in any of the alliances surrounding the eruption of the First World War. But they were also a country geographically in the Balkans and that means they were very close to Serbia close to the reason why the war was starting and most of their neighbors were involved on one side or the other and that Greeks in they had to pick a side it was very difficult to choose not to be involved in a war when you're Greece, when your close neighbors like Serbia and Bulgaria are fighting, and that fighting tends to spill over borders. So the Greeks, like pretty much everybody else at the time, get sucked into World War One. 
Well, at first, that's what it seems like is going to happen. Very simply, they're going to pick a side and join it. And the Prime Minister of Greece, man by the name of Velikelos, knows which side he wants to be on. Which side does he want to be on? He wants to join with France and Britain and fight alongside the Allies, specifically because Turkey has joined into an alliance with Germany, and he really hates Turkey, and he views this as a chance to go to war with them. So do they join the Allies fighting against Germany and Austria-Hungary and all those countries? Well, this is where it gets more complex, because King Constantine of Greece, the king at the time, was originally from Germany before he ended up being king of Greece as a result of some 19th century political maneuvering we don't need to dig too deeply into right now but he doesn't want to go with Germany he very definitely doesn't want to go with Germany and under the Greek constitution of the time he has the sole power to declare war just like a British monarch it's a constitution that's actually partially modeled after the British model so he refuses to declare war on Germany and orders the army to remain strictly neutral. But things can't continue like that. So King Constantine, being from Germany, doesn't want to go to war against Germany, so he declares neutrality. But that's not going to work out. Well, the next problem is that the entire 4th Army Corps of the Greek army ends up being in territory that gets occupied by the Bulgarians after the British violate their neutrality first and then the Bulgarians are threatening to murder them so their commander asks the German army to take him and his entire army corps prisoner so that the Bulgarians won't be the ones in immediate command of him which gets his men out of danger but also puts them in a prisoner of war camp in Germany and public opinion in Greece is not going to stand for this. Not at all. Right. People are upset that their army has ended up as prisoners of Germany. I can see that. Yeah. The political uh, maneuvering that had caused it was complex and not necessarily something that your average man on the street in Athens understood. But they saw what had happened and they were angry, which led to what the Greeks called the national schism. King Constantine declared that they were still neutral, nothing had changed, and he was in command of the army and tried to personally assert his command of the army and some units followed him. But the prime minister, Velikelos, declared that they were now at war with Germany. He was declaring war on his own authority and the army should be following him and some of the Greek army units chose to follow him into declaring war with Germany. And it seemed initially like there was going to be an outbreak of full-scale civil war. There were several violent clashes, including an ugly skirmish on the streets of Athens, the capital city of Greece itself. But in the end, it became clear that the prime minister had the real power here. He had most of the army on his side and the British and the French were more ready to send troops to support him 
then the Germans were ready to support King Constantine. And the result of that was that King Constantine was forced to flee the country to a neutral third-party state in order to avoid potentially being arrested. And the Prime Minister declared that he had abdicated and his son, King Alexander, well, his son, Prince Alexander, would be declared king henceforward and Alexander agreed to declare war on Germany. Greece entered the war, this is in 1916, and then they fought against Germany um, for the rest of the war as a member of the Allies in World War I. Well, they ended up on the winning side anyway. And that is indeed one of the factors that is going to be very important in this story. But before we get to that, let's go back just a moment to discuss King Alexander's family. So there's King Constantine, still living in exile, still of the opinion that he is the rightful king, uh, who's never, in his own mind at least, abdicated. He's just been forced out by a coup and intends, when he gets a chance, to come back. There's his little brother, Paul, who's living now with their father, who has left Greece to go live in exile with their father, which, drama. And then there's his mother and his sister, Helen, both of whom have spent some time in Greece since the initial flight of King Constantine, but both of whom have moved out of Greece because they simply don't trust the prime minister, it's still Prime Minister Velikelos, and they just don't trust him not to try and trim the family tree a little bit, since clearly he's still got lots of problems with the Greek ruling family other than Alexander. Right, so Alexander's father, brother, mother, sister are all living in exile because they're worried that the prime minister would try to off them if they came back to Greece. But Alexander has agreed to be the king. Alexander has agreed to be the king. Does he have any heirs? Well, this is going to make it more confusing still. You see, Alexander, shortly after the First World War ended decided to do something very inconvenient for everybody. He fell in love. Don't you hate it when the kings go off script like that and decide to do something for love? It's just awful and messy. And in this case, he fell in love with a commoner, and he tried to marry her, and he was initially thwarted twice his efforts to arrange a marriage so that he could marry the woman he loved were thwarted by the politicians who knew that it would be a complex disaster to have their king marry a Greek commoner and put the entire succession into jeopardy. But he found a guy, eventually, found a priest who was willing to marry them, got married. After that, obviously, the prime minister had to negotiate on the understanding that she wasn't going away. And the eventual compromise they came to was an agreement that this would be what 
in other parts of Europe is called a morganatic marriage, a marriage where the children of the marriage and the spouse cannot inherit from the typically the father. So in this case, there is a daughter of King Alexander, but she is officially out of the line of succession. Well, I, for one, am happy that King Alexander found true love, but it certainly does make things a little more confusing. I've been trying to draw a picture as we go here, David. Am I missing anything in terms of uh, family members and potential claimants to the throne of Greece? No, those would be the big ones. And in some ways, it's the fact that this is such a limited pool that is going to be the big crisis now in 1920. As Alexander lies dying of sepsis that's infected his monkey bite, the Greek parliament has to look at it, and initially they try and solve the issue by simply offering the crown to Paul, to Alexander's brother. But Paul says no. Why doesn't Paul want to be the king of Greece? Is he afraid of monkey bites? Paul is living with his father, who he views as the rightful king of Greece. Apparently, he has a very strong belief in hereditary monarchy and in following the lines of succession, which I understand is more common amongst princes than amongst commoners like me and you. Well, David, as the older brother, I have to say I have a strong belief in hereditary succession as well, but that's another issue. So Paul (laughs) refuses the crown. Does Parliament have a plan B? Well, the obvious answer is letting King Constantine come back. And certainly King Constantine is already by this point making very clear that he thinks that that would be the right thing to do and to do as quickly as possible. Well, they're past the original reason he had to go into exile, which was World War I. That's over now. So is there any reason why Constantine can't come back and resume his duties as the king? So earlier, Neil, I promised that we'd come back to the fact that Greece had chosen to join the winning side in World War I, to join the Allies. It's time to do that. All right, let's do it. So, end of World War I. Greece is part of the Allies, the winning team. It's a good team to be on. Definitely better than being on the losing team. And the thing is, they joined primarily because Prime Minister Velikelos hated Turkey. And the thing is, the reason why is because he believed that a large portion of Turkish territory, the modern Turkish state, should be Greek because it was historically held by Greek colonists in the ancient Greek period of, say, the Peloponnesian Wars, which we've already discussed on this podcast. Well, that was uh, quite a long time ago, ancient Greece. Of course, if you are interested in that period, a great podcast was episode 11, The Philosophy Student and the Spartan Army. It is an interesting look at ancient Greece and the way warfare was fought back then, but that was a long time ago. So does the prime minister manage to 
make good on this claim that Turkey should be part of Greece? Well, in 1918, the Turks on the losing side are not at the Treaty of Versailles where the fate of the post-war world is being decided. And so when the Greek prime minister draws his line in the map declaring a large portion of modern Turkey that he thinks should be Greek and therefore should be turned over to his forces, the Allied powers agree. Well, they're not sure if they're willing to let it all just be annexed to Greece, but they agree that Greek troops will be allowed to occupy Turkey in order to make sure that the Turks don't rise again in a attempt to restart the war or something, which means that now Greek troops are occupying all this territory and they start annexing it. So it looks in 1920 as King Alexander lies dying as if maybe they've won, maybe they've grabbed all this territory, but there's a problem. And what is the problem, David? The problem is this guy called Kemal Ataturk. He was a Turkish general in World War One, commanded amongst other places at the famous Battle of Gallipoli, and now he's leading the revolution, leading a Turkish revolutionary army against the Greeks. And the thing is, Greece is pretty small, and Turkey is not exactly tiny, and it really doesn't look like the Greeks can hold down all this territory they've annexed without help, but they're having trouble getting support from outside. It's not that any of the nations that are major political players in 1920 dislike them. It's just that nobody really wants to go back to war so soon after the bloody example of the Western Front convinced everybody that fighting wars is a terrible idea. Right, the war to end all wars, so nobody wants to go back to war. Does Greece manage to find someone, or is Turkey going to prevail in this battle? Well, in 1920, it's all balanced. The Greeks are holding their territory but the Turks' revolutionary army is growing every day as they recruit more and more troops and train them. And the Greeks are out there looking for allies, looking to try and get the French and British to show up and help them. But everybody's sort of reluctant. But at the same time, the British have agreed to put a garrison into coastal portions of Turkey near not too far from Gallipoli, actually. It's partially a way to celebrate the fact that the war is over and they're not going to be landing troops there again anytime soon, making sure that they won't have to do an assault landing there anytime soon. But they're not getting deeply involved. And if you're a Greek diplomat asking how you can find these allies you're looking for, bringing Constantine back doesn't seem like a great idea anymore. Right, because of course Constantine is German, wanted to remain neutral in World War I, so I can see why Britain and France wouldn't be eager to come to his aid. How does this shake out in Greece, David? Well, it all comes to something of an overdramatic head as King Alexander finally 
tragically dies at the end of October. As he dies, he cries out for his mother. Actually, several days before he finally expires, he cries out for his mother in horrible pain. But she's still in exile. And by the time everybody's willing to admit that this is serious enough that she should be summoned to his bedside anyway, it's too late. She can't arrive in time. She is furiously angry when she does arrive, gives a blistering speech blaming the government for her being unable to be with her son. The drama of that leads to the Greek government agreeing to at least rescind the exile of all members of the Greek royal family. King Constantine returns to Athens and declares himself king to the people, even though legally he may or may not be yet. And suddenly all the political winds are changing. Even Prime Minister Velikos is willing to suggest that at least there should be a referendum. But then there isn't quite a referendum initially because he doesn't actually want to do it. He just wants to say he's willing to consider it. But then we reach the 1st of November, King Alexander has tragically died, and it's election time. Time for the next elections for the Greek people to decide their political leadership. Wow, so never get between a mother and her son, as it'll be Alexander's mother who really turns the corner on this story, and of course the Prime Minister is still an elected position, so how does the elections play out, David? It's a tight election. Technically speaking, the Liberals, Velikos' party, actually win by 7,000 votes in the popular vote count. But, since Greece, like most representative democracies, is divided into districts which elect individual legislators, not uh, just a straight popular vote head-to-head race, as it turns out, the united opposition win the election by a narrow, narrow majority and immediately move to have King Constantine brought it back in to be the king of Greece again and also decide to organize a referendum to legitimize that decision, leading to more political bitterness because the referendum is very obviously rigged. The official result is 99% in favor of bringing King Constantine back, which is not at all plausible, but helps to make everybody in Greek politics super bitter about the whole thing. King Constantine is back, and the French and the British are both suddenly unhappy about even their minor involvement with the Greeks in Turkey. Wow, done in by first past the post. So Greece once again has a king back to the future. They're back to the old king, Constantine. So how does this all end, David? Well, Winston Churchill, when he's writing about this incident in one of his books, will actually say that it is not too much, perhaps, to say that this single monkey bite killed a quarter of a million people. Now, I think it is too much to say that. You're going to argue with Winston Churchill, are you, David? I'm going to argue with Winston Churchill. Rarely a good idea, but I'm going to try it anyway. Now, the reason why he said that is because the Greek position in Turkey 
shortly after King Constantine's accession to the throne collapses. And by 1922, the Greeks are being thrown all the way back to the sea. And Winston Churchill, in particular, very much ascribes this defeat to the fact that the French and the British are no longer as close allies with the Greeks as they had been previously after King Constantine, whom they do not like, rises back to the throne. And the reason why I don't quite agree is quite simply because I don't see an intervention by the French and the British to restore the Greeks in Turkey as being particularly likely to be less bloody than what actually resulted. I understand, but not the best of endings, perhaps, for Greece. Not for Greece, but this is where we come to the surprising Canadian turn of the entire story. Oh, there's a Canadian connection. Indeed. You remember that I mentioned that the British had a garrison in Turkey after King Alexander had annexed most of it to Greece. Right, near Gallipoli. Near Gallipoli. Now, I'm not going to try and pronounce the name of the Turkish town this garrison was in because I'm not great with foreign languages generally, and Turkish in particular, but the British called it Chanak, and that's how it's gone down in Canadian history. You may have heard of the Chanak crisis, but just to let our listeners know what it was for those of them who haven't heard of it, in 1922, as the Turks reached the sea, they also reached the British garrison. And the British were forced to decide whether they would negotiate with, the, with Kamal Ataturk's new provisional government and withdraw their garrison, or whether they would fight to keep it. And the British Prime Minister at the time, David Lloyd George, who'd been Prime Minister in World War I as well, decided that he wanted to dramatically bolster the troops in the garrison in order to convince the Turks to back down and let the British keep it. And one specific thing that he requested was a request that the Canadian government send troops to be garrisoned there in order to convince the Turks that if the war started, it wouldn't just be the British fighting, it would be the entire British Empire. And so did Canadian soldiers end up at Kanak? They did not. The Prime Minister at the time in Canada was William Lyon Mackenzie King, who would be the Canadian Prime Minister in World War II, and he refused to deploy troops specifically because he felt that the British request had been too high-handed and too willing to view Canada as at war whenever Britain was at war, whereas he felt that, in point of fact, Canada as an independent country with a democratic parliament of its own had to choose to go to war with a vote in our own parliament, not with Britain's decision, which was a dramatic break from the legal practice at the time, as in World War I, Canada had, in point of fact, 
simply gone to war when Britain did on the assumption that a declaration of war by Britain was valid for the entire British Empire. Right, so for our non-Canadian fans, although Canada had been a country since 1867, it really didn't even have full control over its foreign policy yet, so this was quite a dramatic turn for Canada to say no to Britain's request to send troops. As it so happens, Neil, it was this specific refusal that led, through a bunch of twists and turns, to the 1931 Statute of Westminster, in which the British government declared that the Canadian government in 1922 had actually been correct to state that only by the decision of the Canadian Parliament could Canada be committed to war, leading to what is conventionally considered the official moment when Canada gained a fully independent foreign policy. And all because of a monkey bite to a Greek king in 1920. And I haven't even gotten into how all of this would have a surprising strategic effect on the conduct of the Second World War in Romania. Amazing how the world can turn on small coincidences like the king walking his dog while the gardener's monkey runs loose and a fight breaking out between the animals and a bite to the king and so on and so forth this huge snowball that uh, changed forever world politics thanks for telling us the story david i am always happy to share monkey bite related information and we've come to that point of the podcast where we like to play a game do a little quiz and david since it is now 2019 I thought we'd do a 19 quiz, so all of the questions have to do with the number 19. All right. Our first question is, how many U.S. presidents served during the 19th century? The 19th century. Yeah, so from 1800 to 1899, how many American presidents served? Certainly don't have a lot of American presidents before 1800. I'm going to say somewhere on the order, probably more than 20. How about 23? Oh, you're just off. There were 22, although I'll give it to you because Grover Cleveland served twice. So I don't know if that counts as two or one. We'll say it was 23. The game of Go is played on a 19 by 19 grid. Where did the game originate? I always associate it with Japan, but perhaps I will guess that it originated in China, since certainly that's been a cultural hotspot in that part of the world. Around three to 4,000 years ago it originated, and it was in fact in China, although you are right that it really flourished in Japan. In music, for our next question, 19 is the title of Adele's debut album because she was 19 when the album was released. In what year was it released? I feel like it was the early 2000s, maybe 2005? It was actually 2008. You're pretty close there, David. It went to number one in the UK and number four in the United States. Our next question, who was the 19th Prime Minister of Canada? The 19th Prime Minister of Canada. Hmm. 
I should know this, but I have no idea. It was actually Canada's only female prime minister, Kim Campbell, and uh, she was never won re-election, so she was never elected as prime minister. Final question, Dave. We're going to sports and Super Bowl 19, which was in 1985. It was the first Super Bowl in which both quarterbacks threw for over 300 yards as the San Francisco 49ers beat Dan Marino and the Miami Dolphins. Who was the 49ers quarterback? Tom Brady. A good guess. When you're, you're guessing playoff quarterbacks, Tom Brady is a good guess. It was actually the famous Joe Montana he was named the MVP of the game as uh, really ushered in the air attack era of the NFL. Thanks for playing along, David. There's not 19 questions in this quiz, just five questions. So make sure that you give us a follow on social media. We'll do fun things like the Obies whenever we can. At When Art Thou is our handle on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks once again for joining me, David. Always happy to be here, Neil. And thanks for listening. 